I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. While some countries are reopening their economies, others struggle to flatten their curves. There is much enthusiasm about achieving a new normal that is more tolerable than the lockdown, but this enthusiasm is married to the understanding that we will be unable to pursue full civic and social lives until there is a vaccine. The pharmaceutical industry has not had the best track record at researching and developing vaccines for a variety of market and regulatory reasons. And even once discovered, problems with pricing and equitable access follow on. Given the urgent need for a vaccine in the time of COVID-19, is it time to experiment with a new model for vaccine discovery and access? To explore this question, today I'm joined by Jay Kumar Mena who thinks it's beyond time and is building on a new model to do just that. Jay Kumar is an international human rights lawyer working at the intersection of human rights and global health. He is a founder of the Open Source Pharma Foundation, which aims to generate affordable new cures in areas of great health need, and of the India Nutrition Initiative, which is developing DFS, a salt that is double fortified with iron and iodine to address malnutrition caused by iron deficiency. A visiting scientist at the Harvard School of Public Health and a research fellow at the Center for International Sustainable Development Law based at McGill University, I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jody. Thank you so much. So let's get right to it. What's broken about the current ring-fenced for-profit method of drug discovery today? Well, Jody, it's quite widely known that the current process is too expensive, too limited, too slow, uh, too trapped behind company and country walls. Uh, what this means in terms of human impact is a few things. One, for billions of people around the world in countries rich and poor, medicines are just too expensive. There's a, an old political party in New York City called the rent is too damn high. And often the price of drugs and medicines is just uh, too damn high, often, to use the vernacular. Uh, you have medicines that cost uh, upwards of a million dollars a year or, or at least $100,000 a year. Uh, and, 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 so, and this is often with some public support uh, for the R&D. So that's one issue. Another is cost. According to Tufts, which is the most widely cited study on the cost of drug development, it costs... Uh, upwards of a billion and a half dollars to develop a new drug. They say $2.6 billion. They include opportunity costs and financing costs. Some figures are higher, some figures are lower, but it is a lot. Uh, and then the typical timeline for a medicine, 12 to 17 years to make a new drug. Uh, and so the upshot of all of this is that we have a massive system of market failure. The, the, the needs of human biology quite logically enough, do not square up with, do not line up with profit potential, with uh, return on investment. And it's silly to, to inspect, expect that they would. They're quite different, biology and economics. But the problem is that the, the humans are left to suffer. So of the 10,000 plus human diseases, 95% uh, of them have no approved medicine. And uh, of the billions and billions of, that we spend on health, uh, there's a WHO affiliate that estimates, and these figures are contested, but probably directly correct, that uh, there's the 80-20 rule of 
uh, from the uh, from the Global Forum for Health Research that says 80% of uh, global health R&D goes to only 20% of the global health burden. So all this to say that we have a problem with developing medicines and vaccines in areas of, of, of real health need. So that's the problem problematique, if you will, the the what do we need to do something about? And we feel it. We feel it every day. You see it when uh, you have a drug that's very expensive, and you see it when you have a medicine that you need, let's say for tuberculosis or malaria or COVID nineteen that doesn't exist at all. The current system just has not been able to produce uh, what the majority of human beings need. So, how does the Open Source Pharma Foundation uh, hope to do better or plan on doing better? We have a secret advantage, Jody. We are able to tap into the sum total of human knowledge and into the collective intelligence of uh, the planet. And because of this, we are uniquely strong. So the inspiration for all of this was uh, the open source software movement. So if you use a, uh, an Android phone, um, if you use the World Wide Web, uh, if you've listened to a weather report, uh, if you've seen Wikipedia, all of this is the process, product of open source thinking. And very broadly defined, it means uh, community production, it means open forms of intellectual property, it means a heavy use of computation, it means that something these problems are there for the whole world to look at. Uh, they have an aphorism in software that says, with enough eyes, all bugs are shallow. So this is the inspiration for us, and we're trying to apply those kinds of techniques to the process of drug discovery. Uh, and our bar here is very low because, like I mentioned, 95% of diseases have no medicine at all. So the current system just can't do it. If you need billions of dollars in return and your, co and your process costs billions of dollars, then it just, just doesn't make sense for you to look at malaria or you know, a viral disease that could become a pandemic. Um, so... Uh, uh, so that's that's our secret advantage. And then the question you might ask is, well, that's all fine and good for software, but how does it work for medicines and health, which is you know right. not just virtual? So the answer is, uh, in brief, it's crowdsourcing computation open IP. And what it means is you do the early stage of drug or vaccine development online. You use computer simulations to figure out what might work. Uh, and in our case, for example, we have uh, people sitting in rural areas in India on their laptops, and they tap into the supercomputer system uh, of the National Government of India, and they're in a thatched roof sort of shed with open areas and wearing slippers. But they tap in, and they look at a model of the tuberculosis bacteria, and they look at models of the tuberculosis drug, possible drugs, and they dock them, and they see how they fit together, and they try and develop potential drugs. And then in the middle stage, uh, for now, we're going with a sort of pro bono approach. Uh, we're having uh, government labs, uh, and, uh, and we have relationships with national governments that will do some of this stuff for free. Uh, and ultimately, it'll be a, a network of sort of donated or fallow time or low bono time from, from wet lab uh, providers to do the middle stuff. Then you have uh, clinical trials, and we have a methodology here called the open source style clinical trial, uh, which means that you do a regular type of clinical trial, but you have a lot of open elements to it. Uh, a crucial one is, did the stuff work or not? Uh, a lot of that data is not public, and so there's 
a huge amount of waste where people are doing repeating things that have already been uh, uh, done in the past. So we're making all of our data public. Um, we are making the IP open. There's a process where you have an open set of commentary on the clinical trial protocols, which are the technical things that are like what you do in the trial, and a little difference makes a lot. Uh, we have open idea submission. Uh, so there's a whole uh, paradigm-shifting idea that we have uh, for clinical trials, which is the most expensive part of all of this. And then the last bit is generic drug manufacture. So in brief, open-source pharma is medicine for all, uh, or it's Linux for drugs, if you know, if you know your software. Uh, and in another shorthand is sort of new, instantly generic drugs and vaccines. And the generics industry, uh, they make pills for, let's say, five cents a, a pill, and they sell them for eight cents a pill, and they, they make their money. And so it's a for-profit model, but it's affordable to all. And uh, that's, in brief, what open source pharma is. And we're trying to do two things. One is to uh, make new drugs and vaccines. And the other is to develop an entire model and system where it's parallel to what's happening there now in the world. And uh, it's an alternate model that the whole world can pursue. Pretty revolutionary stuff. Um, you talked about, you know, sort of addressing the, the market failure of the for-profit model. You know, normally we think of, you know, governments stepping in to fill the space that market failures uh, leave behind. Uh, why, why, is, why might your model be better than just saying, okay, you know, uh, you know, Canadian government, any government step in. I mean, hey, the Canadian government, you know, the PHAC lab was, you know, in part responsible for the Ebola vaccine. So, so yeah. what, what, why is it not suitable for, for, or what, why can what you're proposing do better? Well, it's quite congruent. So we are, in fact, working with governments. Uh, but what's different is whether it's, let's say you step outside the private sector and you do it in government or you do it even in a nonprofit. The thing is, you need a different methodology. You can't have the same multi-billion dollar, 15-year methodology uh, to address these problems. You have to have a different approach, even if it's done by government. And here, if you have the heavy use of computation, the heavy use of open IP, uh, the heavy use of community and crowdsourcing, those are extra elements that a plain vanilla government program uh, would not necessarily undertake. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I could definitely see governments sort of, you know, being uh, leery or just or just getting kind of stuck in the process of, you know, trying to get agreements and guardrails um, in place for, for quite some time. So Imperial College London is, is you know, following this, this social enterprise uh, model uh, for, for the development of, um, of vaccines. And, you know, I remember, you know, Roger Martin and Sally Osberg. Uh, in their book about social enterprise talked about Victoria Hale and what she was trying to do through repurposing drugs. Would yeah. you do, do, do you think of open source pharma as a social enterprise of sorts or or is it something that's still a little bit different? Um, that's a bridge that hasn't been crossed yet. Right now we're a pure nonprofit uh, and we've placed everything that we have developed into the public domain. Uh, I mean, nonprofits can earn revenue, so we might consider doing that in the future. Uh, we would not be commercial and, you know, uh, doing things for profit. We'd, you know, plow everything back into global health uh, and, and no dividends. So one of the great things, um, you know, there's 
so few heartening things sometimes, you know, um, about this period in our history. But, you know, there has been a lot of collaboration, you know, around COVID-19 um, vaccine de- development. It, so when you think of, you know, open source pharma, when you think about it in that context, you know, how does it drive more collaboration or is it better collaboration? Yes, I would say it's both. And let's do a thought experiment, right? Einstein used to talk about Gedankens, thought experiments. Now, let's pretend that we had recently arrived in plan- on the planet Earth, third rock from the sun, from Mars. And we saw that the planet Earth, the entire human population, was under siege, threatened by a virus. What would we expect a rational and compassionate set of human beings to do? We would think that it would be humanity versus the virus, that all of us would work together at it. And when we found a potential vaccine candidate or some weakness in the virus, it would all be there in the public. We'd all be looking at it together. With enough eyes, all bugs are shallow. With enough eyes, all viruses are shallow. Uh, But instead, we have, uh, at this point, there are about 150 separate vaccine projects. Uh, There are many times that uh, separate drug projects. And each of them, for the most part, is still happening, you know, working behind closed doors. It's business as usual. There is a lot more openness than there ever has been. This is a zenith, really, for open source thinking. Uh, But it's still not where it could be. And if we were serious about the science we would have all of this happening together at once. And science is built on sharing and science, scientific advances standing on the shoulders of giants. And so <clears throat> these are the parts that uh, need to happen and are closer to happening than ever before. And these are, this is the type of system that we're trying to encourage. Um, there's sort of closed and then there's sort of moderate open, which has you know a little bit of sharing and collaboration. And then from the software world, we see we have open source, which has two amazing advantages. One is that the whole world works on it at once. And two is that the IP is open, that any producer anywhere uh, can, can make the stuff. So that's kind of what we're advocating for. Uh, it's caught on. So uh, one of our colleagues from the past is now the W number two at WHO. She's the chief scientist there. And the, number, and the WHO issued a statement calling for open data, open sharing of results uh, that the, you know, the scientific, the fruits of scientific research be available to all of humankind. And uh, it's kind of like a little bit like the law of the sea or the treaty of the moon, the common property of all humankind. And that's kind of our approach. And then, you know, I'll pause there, but I, I also did want to pick up on the, the repurposing comment that you mentioned. Mm. Um, so one of our first projects has been, we've been doing repurposing of generic drugs for a couple of years now. Uh, and so we are in phase 2B clinical trials along with the government of India for a, uh, for, a thera- for a medicine for tuberculosis. And tuberculosis still to date, uh, I should double check the figures, but I believe, yeah, it kills over 1.5 billion people, million people per year. And so even in 2020, it's killed more people, I believe, than COVID-19. Uh, it just doesn't well, get as much We certainly still press. struggle in Canada with TB in Canada's north. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a global problem, um, even in in Canada. Uh, And there's just um, one of the reasons open source pharma was created was that to to help address this problem, much of our team comes from uh, a big pharma, which shut down its office in India. 
which was working on TB, and we kind of scooped up their scientists. Um, and the government of India's OSDD, Open Source Drug Discovery, had been working in TB for a while, and we kind of have supplemented that effort. Um, but uh, so so there's just um, there's a gap in TB. Uh, this the most widely used drug is 50 years old, and it's sort of <clears throat> very highly toxic. Um, excuse me, uh, and um, really not very good at all. So what we've done is um, looked at this need and taken a generic, widely used generic diabetes drug, it's called metformin, which has been shown to generally boost the immune system. It's being tried on all sorts of things these days, but had not been tried yet on TB. And we're in phase 2B clinical trials along with the government of India. They're the lead. We're the secondary sponsor. It's the National Institute for Research in Tuberculosis. And you heard the figures I said before about, you know, $1.5, $2.6 billion to develop a drug. That's starting from scratch and in a large industry model. Uh, by using this repurposing approach, we got to phase 2B. We started it for less than $50,000. We did it in our first year of funded existence. So we're talking, you know, less than 1%, maybe even 0.1% of some of those larger figures and a decade faster. Uh, it's a valuable approach. It's an approach that the U.S. NIH believes very strongly in. But it's an underpursued approach just because of the limited financial, you know, uh, the, the limited remuneration. If you have a drug that's already generic, there's not a ton of money that you can make in, in, in selling it in different, you know, for different diseases. But in terms of health, it's unbelievable. And so now what you see, for example, with coronavirus, a lot of the medicines that are being tested, they are repurposing existing drugs. We don't have a decade to develop a new one from scratch. So I think there's some uh, vindication that we feel... Um, that's too strong a word, but some some uh, uh, some joy actually in, in the world coming around and seeing that that uh, repurposing is is a you know a very valuable approach. So how did you you know let let's talk about that that early stage of discovery and 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 for sure let, let let's stick with with the example um, of the work already accomplished uh, on TV with metformin. So. Can you explain to to a layperson, you know, in terms of the the computational work, how how was that leveraged to even say, hey, let's try this diabetes drug, you know, to treat TB? Yeah, so there was an interesting study. Uh, the lead study on it was from uh, from Singapore, and what uh, A star, Professor Amit Singhal, and what he did was he had an intuition that this metformin boosted your immune system generally. Uh, and so he tried it out in the lab. Uh, they call it in vitro in like Petri dishes. And he found that it, you know, helped work on the cells, uh, et cetera. Uh, then he also did animal studies and he also looked at retrospective human data, like a whole bunch of people who were taking metformin and a whole bunch of people who were not. And was there a difference in who, who came down with TB? Uh, so all of that gave an indication that it was worth exploring further, not worth using, you know, uh, but <laughs> worth exploring further. Uh, and then on the computational side, uh, it was really interesting. It's like sometimes biology is conceptually pretty simple. Um, so there were, you know, I'll, I'll make up the number 15 different strains of, uh, of tuberculosis. And what they did was they tried to see uh, what was common to all those strains in the genome. Um, and then once they found that, they took a kind of Darwinian evolutionary approach and they said, okay, that must be very important. It was common to all of the TB. And then also, if you 
can knock that out, then you knock out all the different types of TB. And so then you have the genome that, uh, you know, that, that, that can be looked at computationally. And they look at all the different drugs. And what does that part of the genome express? What are the, uh, and I'll get quickly beyond myself here. I'm just a lawyer. But they look at the products of those genomes, the proteins, et cetera, and what drugs work on those things. And you sort of match them up and you do these computational studies and you say, oh, you know, this type of thing that works on this type of process might work against TB. And then you match that up against uh, those qualities against all the existing generic drugs in the world. And voila, you find that uh, metformin might work against TB. So I, ha- I have to ask just because I, I, I'm so curious about it. And it was such, you know, even though it might have been predictable, it was such a bombshell. You know, how do you deal with, you know, the garbage in, garbage out problem? You know, that and we've certainly seen it in COVID, right, with hydroxychloroquine um, and, you know, really respected journals like the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, publishing uh, articles based on data sets they, they couldn't even um, access. So, you know, do, do things like that, you know, present a challenge to this type of model? Um, I would say, I mean, that's a challenge, I think, across science and not particular to this model. Um, in fact, this model may be better suited to deal with that challenge because if you have a review that's done in larger groups, then you have more eyeballs there, more skeptical people to, to scrutinize what's being done. Uh, so I would say the uh, what's what's exacerbating that problem is is the speed, the issue of speed, um, which uh, everybody feels right now. People have this tremendous pressure to produce something quickly, uh, and with that, can you know um, that people can take shortcuts or, or act more quickly than they normally do. And it's a tough balance. I mean, the normal process is uh, is rigorous and good. Uh, it is very slow, and I think people are trying to look at, at, at ways to do something faster just because of the simple human need. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of the open source pharma model then, so, um, you know, the metformin was, you know, repurposing a drug. You keep it at the same dose so that you can move more quickly into phase two trials, you know, avoiding the the first phase of trialing. Can this platform work for new discovery? Uh, yes. So great question. So it can. We, we've we started with repurposing because we wanted to uh, try and have a quick impact on human health. And we are, you know, our goal has always been to address areas of human need. Um, and so in doing so, we saved maybe a, a decade off of the timeline because you could skip preclinical phase one and phase 2A and go right to phase 2B. And you can even, uh, yeah, so it's, it's much faster. Um, in terms of de novo, yes, it's very much possible. And so the the, pipe, the pathway there is you do the early stage work on the computer. Uh, and then the middle stage, you know, in the wet lab work, uh, uh, at this point, we've uh, gotten, we, we would work with institutes that are willing to do this work for us pro bono. Uh, and then we would come to the same point where we are now, which is clinical trials. And thus far, we've been you know, working with government uh, and doing the clinical trials in that setting. And it's quite a bit cheaper, in fact, to do clinical trials outside of the private sector. Uh, there is sort of efficiencies um, uh, to be had. You work with academic researchers directly rather than working with one level up, which is a CRO, and working two levels up, which was a big pharma. Uh, 
so we're kind of frugal innovators and we're used to getting things done very going very far very quick uh, with very few resources so absolutely you can do uh, de novo uh, they call it or a novel discovery in, in an open source model uh, it's a little slower and more challenging but that's the same for for a non-open source model as well yeah, exactly. So slower than than if you're repurposing a drug, but not necessarily slower than the the sort of larger big pharma for a profit model. Although Moderna is doing some interesting things, right? Like they're already moving into phase three, you know, uh, related to a vaccine. I mean, even you know, I'm a layperson. In fact, I'm a lawyer too. So yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, no fancy clinical letters uh, after my name. But you know, um, I was um, a, a leader in operations, and I think hmm, multiple doses. You know, uh, you know that that that's a challenge. You know, if we're if we're going to widely deploy uh, a vaccine, and that Moderna vaccine does require you know, two doses. But it's interesting. I mean, they're, they're, they're to be applauded. They're already moving to phase three, uh, but phase two continues to enroll patients uh, while they're while they're initiating phase three, and they're already moving ahead with um, scaling up manufacturing capabilities. Um, so, you know, how, how does that strike you? You know, did, did you see that coming, I guess? You know, did, did, did you think that Pharma kind of had this other gear, and they were just kind of sitting on it. Or, or, or did did this, you know, raise some eyebrows for you? So it's been a wake up call to pharma that their processes are 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 too slow and not attuned enough to public health areas of public health needs. They realize that they have to go faster, uh, and many of the big players are doing more open kind of work. Um, and so I think there's been a sea change in pharma and, and this, the open ways of doing things, whether, you know, limited, moderate or quite open are, are catching on. And they're realizing that, uh, you know, that uh, there is a different approach um, with regard to vaccines. It's really very interesting. So, yeah, Moderna is in phase two and, you know, getting ready for phase three. So um, uh, we, the Open Source Pharma Foundation, uh, in partnership, working with uh, with other groups, specifically uh, a, prof- a professor at Harvard Medical School uh, uh, in the U.S., and with the government of India's National Institute for Research in Tuberculosis in India, are also preparing for a phase three. And we're doing this because of the power of the open model, uh, which in some respects, the open model conveys disadvantages. Uh, you have it's less well-funded so far, uh, and it is um, has more limited commercial prospects. But in terms of health, it can be, and speed, it can be enormously better. So what we are looking at is repurposing again of existing vaccines against uh, TB. I mean, sorry, against COVID-19. And uh, crucial difference. Uh, <laughs> but but we're, I, the reason why I said TB is because we're... Uh, uh, looking at BCG, which is a tuberculosis vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, it costs about seven cents a dose. It is already being produced in the billions of doses, and it is already approved. So this already works, um, you know, in, in other diseases. Uh, so we will not see uh, the access issues that even if uh, uh, Moderna succeeds, will be uh, rife. 
uh, it'll be this will be available for the world to use, uh, and it's already the production capacity is already there, which is another major hurdle in, in the COVID nineteen context. So this kind of thing, uh, I think, repurposing has sometimes been the you know the the forgotten uh, uh, approach, uh, and uh, the fact that you know a small group and small players can be fairly near the head of the global vaccine uh, race is amazing. Now, one challenge, I'll say just to be frank, has been uh, has been funding. So uh, the, these types of protocols have been drafted months ago by very credible players, the government of India, research institutions, and, uh, and people at Harvard, and the philanthropic community and the uh, investor community has been slow to react. So we are trying to galvanize support and, 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 and attention for this type of trial. Uh, in the U.S., we would do it in nursing homes, which, you know, almost everybody in the, in the U.S., you know, will have an elderly relative and many will know somebody in these homes. And about uh, one third of deaths in the U.S. from COVID have been in nursing homes and 90 plus percent have been people over 60, whereas the vaccine trials seem to be happening mostly amongst younger people. So this type of thing with uh, is, is nearly ready to go. And you hear about Oxford, you hear about Moderna, they're in phase two, coming up on phase three, but so is the open source movement. Oh, well, that's, that's fantastic. And for sure, you know, um, uh, in Ontario and in Quebec, you know, the number of deaths uh, in long-term care homes uh, has been uh, quite a tragedy uh, here. Uh, while some other provinces have have succeeded uh, better, um, I, I have to ask you, and and I apologize yeah. if this is a stupid question, but it's yeah. something that nags at me. I just love the story of insulin and you know sort of banting and bust, but you know we all know that it actually costs a lot of money to uh, for for people with diabetes to purchase insulin today, and that's through some gamesmanship that's uh, that's sometimes conducted on the part of pharmaceutical companies. Do you ever worry about that happening to an open source pharma product that basically, you know, a pharmaceutical company maybe tweaks a few things and then, you know, you, you know, builds these thickets of patents around their tweaks in order to, um, in order to, you know, basically profit off of, uh, off of your discovery? Yeah, it's a very important question. A lot of people ask it. They say, what if we do all this stuff in a humanitarian spirit, somebody runs away with it and, 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 and. You know, makes money off of it, and even worse, kind of, you know, prevents others from using it. So I think here the the law has, uh, for all its flaws, has a pretty good answer. Uh, in patent law, there's something called prior art, and if if something's already out there in the public, other people can't can patent it. Uh, now you correctly say they could make some tweaks and patent their version. Yeah, that's fine. Let them do that, but that won't stop you from what you're doing. And if you are making the same something that's as good, just as good, and much cheaper, then you'll have an advantage. Fantastic. So I have another question. So, you know, I was reading about um, your work um, as a lawyer in connection with the case of David Wong, and you were the, you know, 15th lawyer in 14 years to take on his wrongful conviction case. And and you were successful and, and you uh, very graciously, you know, point to um, David Wong's uh, community, uh, that had a community of support that had built up around him and they and they had formed a, a committee. And so it made me wonder, 
where are the patients in the open source pharma model? Isn't there isn't there a community of patients that 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 you know needs to support this work and and has a has an important role to play? Absolutely. So in in the rare diseases, we see very active and powerful patient communities. Uh, that there'll be a, a some a, a parent will have a, a child with a disease and will single handedly create a drug company. They won't be a scientist, but they'll learn the science and raise money and hire people and start to um, have, you know, create scientific progress on their disease of interest. Um, and that's a kind of uh, patient-centric model, um, a drug discovery model that happens a lot. Uh, the, the term patient-centric actually is, is uh, in vogue these days because, you know, we medicines are supposed to be made for people, and so you shouldn't forget about the people. Now, as a public health person, parenthetically, I think patient is too narrow a word, that patient implies somebody who's gone to a hospital or a health clinic, and public health is much broader than that. It's about, you know, sanitation and exercise and uh, prevention and things of that sort. Everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I think, you know, where where is the patient in all of this? So tuberculosis, uh Two billion people are infected with the tuberculosis bacteria. Two billion. Now, uh, and 1.5 million of them die. Many of that is latent, but 10% of them about fall, of them fall sick in their lifetime, and about 1.5 million die every year, more than HIV, AIDS, and again, more so far than COVID. Uh, but the, it, the, the communities are, are not powerful communities. You know, the north of Canada... Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, not wealthy, and so the community's interest has not been served. Uh, so we are working with patient, TB patient groups, etc. Uh, they're not nearly as well organized or funded as others. Um, we have a project called the TB Digital Quilt, where we want to raise. It's a, a sort of homage to the AIDS quilt, which put the helped put the d disease of HIV/AIDS on the map. It was basically squares memorializing people who had uh, succumbed to that disease, uh, uh, celebrating their lives, and stitched together into a large quilt. So we're doing a similar thing updated for the digital age, the TB digital quilt, which is basically video selfies of citizens, family members, students, scientists, poly policymakers, activists, what have you, talking about their experiences with TB or their views on it. Uh, and then you kind of create a video wall, uh, of squares, of quilts, of, of quilt squares, and you click on each one and you can have a sort of testimonial. And we hope that, that that's in its pilot stages now. If it grows large enough, then people and policymakers will, will realize that this is something we need to do something about. So you have our listeners' attention. You know, what's what's the call to action here? What's the, what you know, as, as citizens and, you know, who are all participants in population health, um, you know, what, what is the call to action you ask of us and, and what can we do uh, particularly as Canadians in terms of this international movement? Well, there are, I'd say, three things. One is we're setting up a global hub for open source health R&D. And uh, we have participation from governments, national governments uh, in North America, uh, the EU-backed groups, likely the government of India, parties in Africa. And I think Canada should join. And I think people should ask Canada to join and be at the forefront of creating a new world. Uh, a second thing is, you know, I'd like to issue a clarion call. And this could be to 
individuals, philanthropists, companies, who is interested in being a supporter of a rigorous phase three COVID vaccine trial, something that would create a vaccine that, you know, if it did work, would be open in terms of intellectual property and dirt cheap and available, essentially more available to the people of the world than any, almost any other candidate. And that is ready now and we need your support. Um, the third thing is you can just Google open source pharma and sign up, be part of a member of the community, learn more. Um, and I guess the last thing is to just keep in mind that the system that we have now was constructed in a particular way uh, that fits with a particular set of industry configurations. But it is possible, scientifically and sociologically possible, and financially possible, to have an entirely different system. And in fact, it could be faster, cheaper, better, and result in far improved health outcomes. Jake Martin, thanks so much for opening our eyes. Thank you for your passion and for, you know, building out uh, an alternative when, when I think, you know, many thought the choices were just between uh, government and for profit. Thank you for, for your, in, your insights and, uh, and your sense of discovery. It's fantastic. Thank you so much, Jody. It's been a real treat.